Welcome to the Chinese Canadian Museum's podcast, The School Room. I'm your host, Melissa Lee, CEO of the museum. Thank you for joining us. Today we are recording this episode from Victoria, BC, where we have a new exhibition for our Victoria location in the historic Fantan Alley that opened on December 8th. Presented with the Victoria Chinatown Museum Society, the new exhibition is called The Magic of Tony Ng and celebrates the magical life and career of Chinese-Canadian magician Tony Ng. Today we are joined by Julie Ng, Tony's daughter. Hi Julie, how are you? I'm great, thank you for inviting me. Could you introduce your dad to our listeners? I understand he was from Victoria and ran his own magic shop. Yes, my father was once described to me as iconic and I appreciate that very much, but I think he was very much a character too. He was born in Victoria, actually in Sydney, BC, and my grandparents had a little cafe called the Beacon Cafe. So my dad, at a very early age, with his brother and his family members, all worked at the cafe. So he was in hospitality very early. By the time he hit about, I think, eight years old, you know, a young man has to go off and get his haircut. So the local barber plops him into the chair to bring him into his world. The barber showed my dad a coin trick. And apparently from then on, he was hooked. So he, yeah, he grew up in, in actually in Victoria and Sydney. So my grandparents had houses in both locations as they were keeping their business going. So my dad kind of grew up in Victoria. And he, you know, I was thinking a lot about this. You know, he stayed in Victoria. He could have moved off. He could have gone to Vancouver. He could have gone elsewhere. But he loved this city, Victoria. And it's a port city, as my friends point out to me. And I think that makes it a really interesting little gem on the West Coast. So... Yeah, he, he ended up doing many things, but owning a magic shop was, I think, one of the things he was most famous for. And many people who knew Tony reminisce fondly about his magic shop, which was called Tony's Trick and Joke Shop. So can you tell us a little more about that? Where in Victoria it was? Did you visit your shop often when you were growing up? Was it a key part of your childhood? Absolutely, all three. My dad, as I keep referring to him as this character, did many things. Magic started, as I said, at an early age, but he also got into bartending, believe it or not. So that has a really important part to all of this because as a bartender, you have to work with people, you have to get to know people, you have to be very friendly, you have your regulars. And in doing that, he really started to hone his magic skills because it's a way of bringing people in, making yourself memorable to them and having a nice liaison with your with your clientele. Plus, there's a magic to cocktails. And, and that was the magic of it all. You know, you're behind the bar, you're mixing drinks, but you're a hospitality management person. You know, you're bringing people in. So my father ended up running not only the Army Navy for a short period, but he got a very good job for him at the drummer's lounge at the old Red Lion Inn. And this is important because it's, it's a lounge. It's a place where people came to him. And he established this as like his establishment, his place. And my father didn't drink, so he's the perfect kind of bar manager too. <laughs> so he would have this group coming in all the time. And, you know, for a long shift, maybe about 4 p.m., you know, until 2 a.m., he's constantly working and meeting people. So he's working behind the bar, introducing people. He's liaisoning, you know, with the orders, and then the magic comes out. And there's a whole subgenre in magic called bar magic. So my father really obviously excelled at that point. 
Now, long story short, unfortunately, one of the magic shows my dad was doing caused a very strange accident where he, it caused my dad to inhale quite a bit of smoke. Oh. And yeah, it collapsed one of his lungs. So working in a bar no longer became a viable option because in those days, secondhand smoke. Of course. So because of this health hazard, my dad had to really pivot. And that's when he moved into the premier school of bartending. And again, you know, in Victoria, it's a small town. So people would come to the school, it became a board certified class. He ended up teaching at Camosun College, uh, a college here in Victoria. And all of these things as an educator, as a bar magician, as a bar manager, all set him up for the big final phase of his career, which is the shop. My dad had a thriving business. My mom was very supportive in all of this. And by the way, it's a family affair the whole time. So my sister and I are constantly part of these activities. All the while, my dad's doing all these magic shows too. So I think when we start to look at the city and the, the career of my dad's track, the shop became this really golden opportunity for him because Crazy Franks that used to be up on Fort Street in downtown Victoria came up for sale. And my father's always dreamed of having a magic shop, but he was doing very well with the bartending school. And he decided, you know what? This is only gonna come up once. And so they sold the school and we went into retail. <laughs> so that was about 1986, something like that. And my dad opened up at 532 Broughton Street, which is right downtown Victoria, right by the Inner Harbor. Right. So when you look at the, the parliamentary buildings, you have the Empress Hotel, those iconic pictures of the harbor were just up the street on Broughton Street. So it was a lot of foot traffic. Swift Shore was crazy. Uh, the cruise ships that would come into the city. In fact, the Clipper, so the Seattle Clipper used to come up and down from between the port to port, you know, Seattle to Victoria. And people would bring, you know, the, the, the stop would come over to, oh, you've got to see this shop. So it became this thing where students for, you know, a grade eight uh, graduation trip, they would have on this schedule Tony's Trick and Joke Shop. <laughs> so major tourist destination. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And the shop was, you know, a fixture for about 19, 20 years, my, my mom and dad around that. So before our friend Murray Hatfield purchased it. And it was great. I mean, these are also formative years for me as a young person, my dad bought it and started running it. And I'm working side by side with him, not only in the bar school, but then of course in the retail. And what happened in the retail is you've got to bring these tourists in. But my dad set it up like it was a bar, right? It's back to the establishment. It's back to bringing in your clientele, getting to know the regulars, bringing in new people, making it an establishment for them to come annually. So the way the counters were set up at the magic shop, we had, you know, it's a joke shop too, so you had exploding pens, you had uh, mysterious piles of doggy something that you shouldn't be touching, you know, <laughs> or it looked like someone might have been sick on the floor. It was ridiculous. Disappearing ink, whoopee cushions, joy buzzers, the whole thing. And we also had wigs and masks and makeup. So all these counters were loaded with crazy novelties. So when people came in, you were almost forced in a funneled way to come to the magic anchor of course, where the magic was displayed. So that's where my father anchored himself behind the, the counter, just like as I say at the bar, and he would have this very nice demonstration area. And that's where everyone would just crowd over, lean over, you know, standing room only, hanging off the rafters, trying to see the magic. And it's a fun way of, you know, bringing people in. And when they see a crowd and the windows open, the foot traffic, what's going on there? So it was an attraction as much as it was a tourist, you know, shop. 
What was it like growing up so close to magic as a kid? Did your father do magic tricks at home? Um, and did he teach you uh, what was behind the magic? Absolutely. You know, there's a story at my house. I wasn't delivered by the stork. I was pulled out of the hat. <laughs> so that's, you know, I was in it since infancy. And my father had my sister and I a part of the, the stage show, which he called Mysteries of the Orient, very early on. You know, I, I remember being on stage right from the get-go. I, I mean, I think we were just old enough to walk. And uh, he would produce us out of these enormous, you know, boxes. But we would be all dressed in like Chinese costumes too. So right. I think it had to look really nice. You know, you see a, a, a figure, you know, presenting what we would call sort of Chinese themed magic and the iconography is all Chinese. And then, you know, you produce two little girls in these costumes. I mean, it's like a living doll, you know, it's, it's quite stunning, you know, to see children on stage and produced like that. And it was a part of our upbringing. It was normal for us. And it was a way of, I guess, honoring your heritage as well, or maybe totally. that's what your father was doing yeah. in having Chinese-themed uh, magic. Exactly. And I think that's what's an interesting thing for me to point out. You know, we don't grow up thinking, oh, we live in a Chinese family. We are a Chinese family. You know, we don't run around um, thinking, oh, this is very Chinese-themed. You know, we just do these things or we are this way. My family is very proud of their Chinese heritage. And yet it's not a thing that we concentrated like the conversations around necessarily. It was just a part of the whole activity. So for example, what I mean by that is my dad was a longtime member of the Victoria Lines um, Chinatown Lions. What are the Victoria Chinatown Lions? So it's a service club and it's a part of the Lions Club. So right. again, very much a part of a community driven service club for the people. And there are important characters inside of the Chinese uh, community in Victoria who really set themselves out to be of service. And my father was heavily influenced by this because his father was part of this community. So, you know, you inherit this great legacy of service for a community. And that, I think, was part of why, for me growing up, I'm around all of this all the time. Uh, my dad is an active member of this, so our family is ergo always a part of something in the Lantern Festival that was held in Victoria for many years under the um, watchful eye of Bessie and Jack Tang. They were longtime members of the Chinatown Lions Club. They're like family members to me, Uncle Jack and Auntie Bessie. They were very close to my grandparents, so they're like pseudo-grandparents to me. But they were of the people to, you ask anybody in Victoria, it's always Uncle Jack and Auntie Bessie. You know, that's the way we refer to these, this royalty of, of um, great people. So the Chinatown Lions is a big part of that whole part of um, my dad's upbringing, my upbringing. And so the community becomes a part of that. You know, we celebrate all of these things that we do as a collective. It was about making opportunities. It was never saying, you can't do this, this is not for you. And, and I think, I'm a magician in Toronto now. And I think that um, as a woman, as a woman of color, as, a, as an individual, you know, coming from Victoria, moving to Toronto, all of these things are available to me because of this group, because of this foundation, because of this family. So I think that's important for me to also now as an adult, look back and reflect, you know, that's, this is what Victoria is to me. You know, this is the place where it becomes um, the foundations of my, my identity. So that's, a, yeah, as I said, that's for me, I don't even think of myself as Chinese, <laughs> I am. <laughs> 
And I think it's so amazing just to hear you talk about also being a professional magician as well. At what moment did you decide that this was going to be your career? You were going to continue your father's legacy in many ways. Yeah, you know, it's again, it's something that fell into a natural track. My father and my mom, um, they got married really early in 1968, uh, early in their ages. You know, they, they, they basically had children very early and gave up the opportunity to go to university. And so that was something that was really important to them, that my sister and I go and have a university education. And I'm really glad that they pushed both of us into that track. My sister's become an architect. And that was something that my father and my mom had always saw Sandra had a gift for, and they really supported her on that track. And I'm the eldest. My sister and I are very close in age, but I kind of followed into this performing track. It's not because we chose, like that was assigned to us. This is just our natural path. And again, I credit my parents for giving us that identity, our, our own choices to choose our identity. But because I started following my dad around, I was helping him all the time in the show as you become a part of the show. You know, it was a natural sort of mentorship, apprentice mentorship spiral. You know, you learn, you then assist, you learn more, you're on the sidelines, and then you start being put in front of the group, in front of the footlights. And then, you know, there was a big moment for me when my dad said to me, I, was a, I had an opportunity to go to Toronto to work on a show, but on a totally different role. And it was quite confronting to me. So, of course, naturally, I go seek advice from my dad. And he goes, I think you should take it. And that was surprising, not because he told me to, but because he then said, I've taught you all that I can teach you. You know, there's no more I can teach you. You'll be fine here. You can do all of these things. But if you want to make this a real career, you, he was kicking me out of the nest. Right. So it's really profound to me that someone with that much confidence in his own way of being, that his ego didn't require me to become him to then follow his footsteps in that realm. He wanted me to establish my own career. And because of that, I have spent since 1998, you know, in Toronto. And I've now I'm the executive director of an organization called Magicana. We're a registered charity and our whole focus is to promote magic as a performing art. So it's quite, you know, it gives me chills to think, you know, I could not have had that opportunity had my dad not seen the, the potential in me. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? I thought magic was a performing art. How do you advocate for that in your organization? It's a, it's a great question. Magic has many different definitions in the public eye. And I think that's one of the things that as a professional magician, that um, I almost struggle with because, especially with the advent of YouTube or video magic, the pandemic certainly threw us into that um, even in, a, in an accelerated way. Magic is a performing art, but for me, that kind of art is profoundly tied to a live experiential performance. Now that's not to say that's the only form of art. I've seen lots of incredible magic on a screen or interactively. Uh, David Copperfield is a great example of, you know, the, the power of a name and tied to television. You know, he can't do live performances around the world like that and reach that many people. And yet, I think that there's something someone said to me last evening, you know, there's nothing like having the magic happen in your hands. That is to say, in person, hand on hand. And that is difficult. It is an art. But it, magic can also be a craft. Right. So I think there are many different realms of how we look at it. And my job is to both provide resources 
and perhaps even insights through our, our programs, like we have children's programs, seniors programs, we have publications, we have online exhibitions, we also produce shows to try and give the different appeals and broaden the definition of magic, but also to expand the public's perception of magic as an art. It could be more than just a card trick or a coin disappearing or uh, something that they perhaps see on YouTube, which could be magic or video magic. <laughs> How do you show your own personality as a magician? And this goes back to what you said about your father wanting to kick you out of the nest and be your own person. Because a lot of magic tricks, there are famous ones, right? Pulling the rabbit out of the hat. And does what define a magician their personality and how they do their tricks or what would you say? I think that's another great way of looking at magic because you're seeing it as the individual being the focus and the character that emits the magic. And I think that's a really great distinction inside of art. You know, it's the practitioner who is providing or or offering or presenting. And I think that it, it does therefore define the kind of magic one chooses. So there, as I was saying earlier, lots of subgenres in magic now were technical. We define, oh, you're this kind of a magician, you're that kind of a, of a magician. And interestingly, you know, my dad had more like a wide ranging style. One might even say, you know, almost on a journeyman kind of track. You know, he while he did do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, it also gave him an experience inside of being able to do all that. And why that's important is you're hitting different realms, so different audiences, ergo different demographics to be quite frank. So you can do um, a fundraising show, you know, for a gala party on stage. You can be doing what we would call a corporate banquet show, just perhaps an after-dinner entertainment, or mix and mingle something in the cocktail hour. You want to something a little more interactive, perhaps less formal, but way more personal. Or then there's also a very special kind of magic, like um, an act of, of beautiful card manipulation, for example, or any kind of what we would say manipulation. There's dove magic, there's stage magic, there's parlor magic, you know, there's close-up magic. There's, it doesn't end. So all of these people have different personalities that really do shine through inside of how they present their magic. And that is the magic uh, behind it all, the magician. Exactly. What is your favorite magic trick to do? <laughs> I enjoy many different realms of magic. You know, I'm, I'm kind of schooled that way from my dad. But you know, I've come, I've come to really become fond of one trick that my dad loved to doing. Now I have to preface this, oh, but the reason why I laugh is because as a kid, you have to remember, I've seen this stuff since I was very, very small. For decades, I have been watching magic. And so there was one trick that my, my dad used to do, which my sister and I would almost roll our eyes. You know, if not that one again. <laughs> But that's the fun of it, you know. We we got to also hear and and listen and know the lines. We would mouth the lines backstage, my sister and I. You know, you have to entertain yourself. And so now, the one I used to almost roll my eyes at, I really, really love because I got to relearn it. I'm rediscovering it. It's the linking rings. And it's 
It's one of these tricks that a lot of magicians do. A lot of magicians have also seen each other do. But there's a very special kind of routine, which I did learn from my father, and it's based off a Canadian magician's routine called Die Vernon. And his routine is called the Symphony of the Rings. And it's a complicated routine, but for me, it's also one of the big moments in where my dad and I really shifted gears between that apprentice learning mentorship role. He really wanted to teach me hand on hand in this tacit way. And I have such a powerful, warm, uh, memories of learning this routine with him and walking through and learning how to do all of that and then now being able to present a version of that that I do with all of the foundations that my father had laid down for me. It's a very, you know, meaningful thing for me to be able to do. So it's become, you know, one of the most favorite things that I love to present. I love that. And I love that hearing about how you can really carry on that like a scene in your own way. Um, being a magician that has your own identity, that carries a legacy, but you become your own person. Yeah. Thank you, Julie, for coming on our podcast and sharing these wonderful memories of your family with us. To learn more about the legacy of Tony Ng, visit the Victoria location of the Chinese Canadian Museum in Fantan Alley and check out our new exhibition, The Magic of Tony Ng, Julie Ng's Father. Thanks so much, Julie. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territories of the Songhees and Esquimalt peoples. We invite you all to reflect on the territories that you're on and the host nations. To learn more about the Chinese Canadian Museum and book tickets, visit us at ChineseCanadianMuseum.ca and follow us on Instagram at CCMuseumBC for updates. The Schoolroom is presented by the Chinese Canadian Museum, hosted by Dr. Melissa Carmen Lee, produced by Rosalie Gonawan, and advised by Sarah Ling and Catherine Clement. Production is supported by Noah Taylor and the Walrus Lab. The theme music and original audio was created by Joshua Young, and graphic design is by Studio Pian Pian He and Max Harvey. Stay tuned for next month's episode of The Schoolroom. Available wherever you get your podcasts.